Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lemire. Why do we remember specific moments in our life, but forget all the rest? What can we learn from a guy who only had three months to live? And how can a tarantula help us live a more rewarding life? Dan Heath is the co-author of some of the most powerful books on human behavior and how it relates to business. Today, he's gonna tell us how we can learn to design the moments that change our lives. Welcome to The New Man. Today, I'm talking with Dan Heath. He's a senior fellow at Duke University's Case Center. He and his brother Chip have written some great books like Made to Stick, Switch, Decisive, and their latest book is called The Power of Moments, Why Certain Experiences Have Extraordinary Impact, and it's available now. You can learn more by visiting heathbrothers.com. Dan, thanks so much for talking today. Trip, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm a big fan of your work. I've read all the books, and um, it's it's great to finally have you on the show. Uh, this new book, The Power of Moments, is designed to help us understand defining moments. So, uh, you know, most, if not all, the guys listening to the show are doing so because they want to have an amazing life. They want to look back on their lives and feel a sense of gratitude or that they lived and loved fully. That said, when we look back on anything, what we actually remember are specific moments. So what if we could design our lives in such a way to have more memorable, more meaningful moments? Would that help us create the sense of a more m- amazing life? That's my question for today. So first off, let's get clear. I mean, what is it, when you, when you talk about a defining moment, what is a defining moment? People have a lot of different definitions of defining moments, but the one we're sticking to in the book basically defines it as a unusually memorable and meaningful moment. And what we point out is that on different scales, the defining moments might be very different. So, you know, probably all of us on the line right now have a couple of dozen big capital letter defining moments that we would say really shaped who we are in our lives. But we're also interested in the other end of the spectrum, the smaller defining moments, you know, the the moment that you most remember from the last vacation you took or, uh, you know, the the five or 10 moments from your freshman year in college that still make you smile or, you know, even something like what was the best moment in a meal you had with friends last week? 
what we're trying to do is is tie these very different sizes of moments together and explain that that even though they look very different on the surface, they're actually made of similar elements. I'm glad you're bringing this up because it seems like with social media these days that fewer moments seem remarkable. It's just we're getting just, you know, just bombasted with these. Is that a word? We're getting bombed with all these. Let's different, coin it. <laughs> what's, yeah, here it is today. <laughs> That's a moment, right? We just coined that word. We're just, I'm just wondering, are we becoming more and more numb to these defining moments or are we just dealing with more noise? I think it cuts both ways. I mean, isn't that always the answer about technology? Uh, but I think it's true. I think in some cases, technology is numbing us to moments that could have happened. Like if you think about maybe a friend of yours is having a birthday um, and and you're, you're kind of tired after work and you really don't feel like going out. And so you just make do with the, uh, the gratuitous text message with an emoji instead of meeting them in person. That's a way that technology is kind of insulating or even deterring us from having valuable moments. But then I think about the other side of the equation, too, and that's, you know, your, your kid trips over the sprinkler in the backyard and you got video of it. And maybe your brother is, is notorious <laughs> for being the clumsy one in the family. And you can zip that video over and, and say, hey, my kid's got some of your genes, it turns out. Like that's <laughs> something that, that, that just wouldn't be possible without technology. Uh, there's just no way that that kind of an an intimate and thoughtful moment would be possible in the absence of something like the iPhone. So, so I think it's really about the intention, you know, mm. are, are we looking for opportunities to create moments for ourselves? I like that word create because it comes back to how are we approaching our lives in general? How do we approach the work that we're doing? Are we out in front of it? Are we in that creative space? Or are we just kind of sitting back waiting for something to happen? Um, and so I guess the question is what happens when we fail to create those moments in our lives and we're just sitting back hoping, hoping or wondering why the, these uh, moments aren't, aren't coming along. And I'm thinking about the guy who seems to be stuck in some kind of groundhog day in his marriage or in, or in his company. Um, is the, is, can we use the concepts in this book to start to create this life in a more proactive way to, where we can fill our lives with more of these types of moments? Is that possible? Exactly right. In fact, that's that's pretty much the mission statement for this book is just to point out that a lot of these moments, you know, if, if we interviewed every one of your listeners and asked them for, you know, eight or 12 of their defining moments in their lives, my guess is fair number of those are probably just uh, serendipitous. You know, you you bumped into somebody one day that turned out to be the love of your life or, you know, a teacher spotted something about you, some talent that you had or some ability that you'd never thought about before. And it kind of moved you in a new direction, or you met someone on a plane that turned out to be an important customer or partner. And our point is that we shouldn't just be content to be the recipient of these moments to kind of, as you said, wait around for them to happen, that, that we can be the architects of these moments. And in the book, we're trying to illustrate, hey, these moments are made of the same materials. Um, and if we're thoughtful about those materials, we can start creating them and we can live a, a richer, more memorable life. Okay. Well, let's dive into that then. So what, what makes a moment more memorable and why are, are most moments forgettable? Well, there's four elements that we talk about in the book as being, you know, the stuff of defining moments. There's, there's elevation, which is the sense that a moment kind of lifts us out of the everyday. Uh, it's full of positive emotion, joy and delight and surprise. Uh, the second is insight, you know, in an instant, we discover something about ourselves uh, or something about our world. 
it's been fascinating to learn from people, you know, some of these epiphanies that they've had in their lives, you know, where, where people's lives will literally turn on a dime. We can talk about those more later. Uh, the third element is pride. If you look back on your life, you know, a lot of the moments you're remembering are moments when you were at your best, you accomplished something you didn't think you could, or uh, people recognize you for what you'd accomplished or some skills that you had, or, or maybe it was even a moment of courage where you look back and you're, you're proud of having stood up for something that was important. And then the final element that you see again and again and again in people's defining moments is connection, that there was something about the moment that brought us closer to others, whether that's you know, one-on-one relationship, a parent-child or in a marriage, or, or whether it's a group, you know, maybe you were part of a sports team or, or a team at work that accomplished something really hard and really great. And you kind of look back on that time as the moment that you were all bonded together. And so these are, you know, it, it's kind of like if you're making a great dessert, chances are it's going to have some um, combination of flour and sugar and butter. And Mm-hmm. Uh, these are kind of the ingredients of moments that, that matter, moments that we look back on. And so if we can start layering in more elevation, more insight, more pride, more connection, we're going to have more defining moments. Okay. All right. I, I was, you know, as we go through that, I, I'm thinking about elevation. I was watching YouTube and Pharrell, the, the famous musician and music producer, was interviewing all of these different artists. And in the middle of the interview, we'd have a beautiful woman walk in completely naked and serve them water. And it was interesting to just see how everything changed in that moment. <laughs> And uh, I guess according to, to that, he was breaking the script. That's a, that's a term that you guys coined in, in this book, breaking the script. What does it mean to break the script? To break the script is basically to disrupt the way we ex- expect an experience to go. So our lives are full of scripts, for better or worse. There are just things that happen pretty much the same way every time. You know, you order at a counter at McDonald's, you kind of know the drill. Uh, but the same thing is true of, of our, our work routines. You get up in the morning and you, you shower the same way, you make your coffee the same way, you drive to work the same way, probably your staff meetings follow a script. Um, even our weekends just can start to follow a script after a while, you know, shuttling the kids around and doing the errands and so forth. And it's not that routines are bad, but it is true that routines are generally unmemorable. And so what we're pointing out is if you want to create memories – You've got to learn to break the script. There's this fascinating research that uh, if you ask people, especially uh, older people, to look back on their lives and cite the most memorable experiences of their lives, they tend to cite an unusual number of memories from a period from roughly age 15 to roughly age 30. It's called the reminiscence bump. And, and so the question is, this is only 15 years of a life that might be 80, 85 years. Why are so many memories drawn from that period? Mm. And the researchers that have looked at it have, have concluded that this is because of the novelty that comes during that period. You know, it's the period, the period of a lot of firsts. It's your, your first kiss, your first job, your first time away from the parents, you know, your first, mm-hmm. uh, uh, your, your first relationship, your first... Uh, apartment, on and on and on. First divorce, it, it could happen. It, 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 that could also happen. <laughs> Your first child. Um, and, and what's happening there is, is you're kind of just re-architecting your life on the fly. And so, of course, with these kind of profound changes in our lives, of course, those are, those are memorable days. And the, the depressing finding from a certain perspective is as we go through life, we have fewer and fewer of those firsts. And, and so the question is, how do we continue uh, to create memorable experiences for ourselves in the absence of those things? 
And I, I think kind of the dumb answer is to say, well, I'll, you know, get a new spouse and I'll, you know, leave my kids and move to New Zealand and become a shepherd. And that will be a lot of new firsts. Um, you know, I think the wiser answer is, look, we made a lot of important decisions and we should stick with them. You know, you, you may be in the right marriage and you may be in the right house and you may be in the right job. And it's not that you should uproot those for the sake of having more memories. But it's also true that, that this phenomenon, probably most of us have experienced that time seems to pass faster as we get older. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a nasty thing, right? You, you don't want your final years to be spent in a blur of, of, of fast forward time. And so what we, what we say in the book is, We've got to be diligent about finding ways to to break the norm, to break the script and look for ways to keep ourselves alive, to keep that that spirit of novelty. There's a um, there's a quote from the authors of a book called Surprise. It says we feel most comfortable when things are certain, but we feel most alive when things are not. And I think that's that's a great uh, summary of the sentiment. We have this drive to find more certainty and to eliminate uncertainty, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have the most rewarding experiences from that. We've got to recognize that if we want to have a more rewarding life, we've got to be willing to upset the card a little bit. Exactly right. And okay. in fact, one of my favorite stories uh, in the book is about a guy named Eugene O'Kelly. So he's a guy who's risen to the, the very pinnacle of professional success. I mean, he's 53 years old. He's the CEO of KPMG the, the huge accounting firm. He's got 20,000 employees under him on the org chart. Um, he's got a wife and two daughters. And then in May 2005, he gets a surprise diagnosis from his doctors that he's got three golf ball-sized tumors in his brain. There's no cure. He's wow. got three months to live. Wow. And so, you know, obviously he's, he's racked with surprise and, and pain. And uh, he says, at that moment, he and his wife had to had to pretty much junk all the plans that they'd made for their future. And the question was, you know, what does he do then? And he starts his memoir. It's a great book, by the way, um, called Chasing Daylight, where he records these final months of his life. And, and the very uh, first two sentences in that book are, I was blessed. I was told I had three months to live. And it describes what he did with those three months. And what he started by doing, he said, you know, he couldn't repress the accounting side of him. So he had to make a plan. And so his plan was he drew these concentric circles on a piece of paper where at the center was his family, his closest relationships. And then at the outside, uh, you know, the picture is a kind of bullseye at the very outside were more distant relationships. And he resolved to uh, the word he used was unwind these relationships to kind of bring them to a point of closure and he started with the more distant relationships first. And so, uh, you know, it might be a phone call or an email just reflecting on some of the times they'd had um, sharing memories. And then as he moved toward the center of the circle, you know, he began to encounter friends or, or close colleagues. And, and he would create what he called perfect moments with them where, you know, they would meet in Central Park and go for a stroll and, and talk about the memories they'd had or they'd had have a, a terrific lunch and then go to an art gallery afterwards. And so these were intended to be meetings that were full of pleasure, you know, not not depressing, not sad, but just, you know, kind of reveling in, in the relationship and what they'd shared together. And then, of course, as he got um, uh, further along over the course of the summer, he spent more and more time with his immediate family. And I, I, look, I know this story is kind of a downer. It's, um, it's terrifying to think about what if something like that happened to us or, or someone else. But I wanted to share this quote with you that, that I think really 
rattled my cage a little bit and, mm. and maybe it'd have the same effect for your listeners. So this is, this is O'Kelly talking from his memoir. I experienced more perfect moments and perfect days in two weeks than I had in the last five years or that I probably would have had in the next five years had my life continued the way it was going before my diagnosis. Look at your own calendar. Do you see perfect days ahead or could they be hidden and you have to find a way to unlock them? If I told you to aim to create 30 perfect days, could you? How long would it take? 30 days, six months, 10 years, never? I felt like I was living a week in a day, a month in a week, a year in a month. And I think that that quote is such a powerful inspiration, right? In the context of, of this phenomenon where um, the, the natural big transitions in life um, tend to come more and more infrequently as we age. But, but this is a charge to all of us to take control and to make sure those perfect moments don't decline and to remind us that we have the ability to create these moments and it need not take a terminal diagnosis uh, for us to do it. Yeah, that's what I wanted to underline too, is that it's a skill. We don't have to wait until we get that diagnosis that what if, what if we could start to develop that now? Um, and you guys lay out this ability here in the book. Um, that's so powerful. Um, and plus there's just this element of truth there, like coming back. It seems like we're in this layer of, I got to get things done and there's this fog and then there's the just, okay, life's, the, 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 the truth about life coming to an end is, is showing up and it shocks us and it, and it has us say, how do I really want to live? And that's another choice we can make too. You, you talk about this ability to be stretched in the book um, and the importance of being stretched. What do you mean by that? I, I, I want to I help the, the listener see that, again, if we really want to get the best out of life, we've got to be willing to lean into the places that are, that are most challenging for us. Yeah, so this comes in the section on moments of insight and, you know, how do we have more powerful insights in our lives? And so one of the things we're recommending is that people learn that they can stretch to learn more about themselves. And by stretch, we mean put yourself in a situation where there's a genuine risk that you might fail. You know, it's something you want to try, but you're not sure whether you can succeed. It's a, it's a stretch assignment at work or it's a um, a public presentation you've uh, agreed to give if you have a fear of public speaking or, you know, for some men, it's probably, you know, dance lessons with your wife. It's like that, that uh, for me, that's a terrifying thought. That would be a good stretch for me. And the point we're making, I think there's, these days there's a certain glibness about the idea of failure. You know, from every source, it seems like people are encouraging us to fail and welcome failure and, uh, don't, don't, uh, be deterred by failure. And I get the sentiment of that, and I, I appreciate it, but but let's not forget a couple of things. Failure is really, really painful. <laughs> failure, failure smarts. Failure sticks with you. Yeah. And the second thing is there's this kind of implicit guarantee that if you try really hard and you endure failure, you're eventually going to succeed. And I'm not sure that's true either. You know, I, I have to chuckle when when billionaires are, are interviewed and, and they talk about all the failures they've had in their career, and it's sort of like, well... Well, easy for you to say, right? Because mm -hmm. there was a, a billion-dollar pot of gold at the end of that. And so the point we're making in the book is not that if you fail, you're eventually going to succeed as payoff for your struggles. It, it's actually a more subtle point that, that exposing ourselves to failure is the best way to learn about ourselves. There is uh, a concept in psychology called self-insight, which basically means 
we know what we're made of. We know what we're good at. We know what we want. We know what kind of relationships we need. And self-insight is is just an incredibly healthy thing, psychologically speaking. It's associated with a countless positive aspects of life, from, from good relationships to a strong sense of purpose. Uh, self-insight is a value in and of itself. And so what we're saying is, is not that if you stretch and if you fail, that's that's somehow uh, going to guarantee you success, but rather it will guarantee you self-insight. Mm. Um, putting yourself in a position where you might fail will teach you what you're capable of. You know, in life we won't really know our grasp until we stretch. It's it's so interesting. Just a week ago uh, today, I was driving around with some friends. We were chasing this hurricane swell that's going up and down the East Coast, and and pulling over and looking at these big waves and we're all just scared to go out and so a lot of the a lot of the stories that we were telling that day are about how we've had our asses handed to us in the water you know throughout the years and learn those lessons and those <laughs> gain some really powerful insights of not to mess with mother nature uh at the time those experiences were terrifying and extremely humbling to, to crawl back up on the on the beach and have water coming out of your nose and your mouth and everything but we're chuckling as we're driving down the road of and that's what stuck. I remember those moments more than I remember, you know, so much about those other surf trips that I was on. And so, yeah, that I can I can really appreciate the the power of being stretched and finding our our edges there, and then seeing what we're really made of. And and I, I hope this is a comfort. It's like either way, you learn something about yourself. Right. right. I mean, over the course of a lifetime, isn't it just as valuable to figure out what we're not good at as it is what we are good at? You right. Know, because uh, we can only do you know, a, a certain number of things. There's only a certain number of hours in the day and there's a vast universe of possible options. It's pretty cool when we learn what we should stay away from, what we're not meant for. Uh, and so I think that's that's the payoff to me. We write about um, the story of this entrepreneur in North Carolina who started her own bakery. You know, she was the kind of person who was always baking cakes and cookies and whatnot. And her relatives started saying, oh, you should have your own bakery. And so she eventually studies up. She goes to culinary school. She takes some business classes and she starts her own bakery. And, and at first it's just, it's kind of a dream come true. You know, she's living this fantasy that she's had and she's her own boss. And as time goes by, her attitude really changes. She, um, she had to keep her full-time job because the bakery wasn't enough to support her. And so it was like, she was moonlighting as a business owner. And there was this one weekend when she was putting the finishing touches on a, on a really elaborate wedding cake. And she's kind of late for her delivery. And so she rushes outside with the cake and she puts it in the car and she's just about to drive off. And she looks back and she's about to drive off from her bakery with the front door wide open and no mm. one inside. And this is one of those kind of crystallizing moments I was talking about earlier. It hit her like a lightning bolt that uh, this is making me crazy. Like, I don't want this anymore. Mm. This is not a fantasy. I'm not enjoying this. It's just making me miserable. I'm not cut out for this. And so that's kind of, it's like we always want entrepreneurial stories to end with the entrepreneur overcoming all of the yeah, and obstacles. And then I made and, a gazillion dollars. Yeah, but. and then I had an IPO and was worth $10 billion. <laughs> um, but that's not realistic. Right. And, and the point I want to make about this story is if you study this in business class, it's a failure. But for this woman as a human being in her life, it's the opposite. She learned, hey, this thing that I really wanted to do, I tried it. I'm proud of having tried it. And I discovered... I don't really want it. Mm. And how is it not the case that she is a happier, um, more content person at the end of that than she was before? 
Well, yeah, the flip side is that we'll stay in certain situations where we're miserable for years and, you know, our friends are tired of us hearing us, you know, hearing us complain about it or talk the same stories and they all rolling their eyes. But we're, it takes some these moments, these powerful moments where it's like, oh, my gosh, wait a second. Bam, there's the truth. And I can't I can't go back to seeing things the same way again now that I've had this moment of insight. This you're hitting on something that that is a theme of the book. There's uh, a psychologist named Roy Baumeister who's written about what he calls crystallization of discontent moments. So these are moments when when all of a sudden just, you know, some misgivings or some concerns or some frustrations that you've had suddenly stitch themselves together and become a conclusion. So uh, one of my favorite examples of this, there was this guy uh, working as an assistant manager at, at Lloyd's Bank in London. And his job was he, he would sit with what they called an out-of-order report. So these are all the business clients who had um, breached their, their loan limits or their overdraft limits. And so his job was to decide, do I bounce these checks that they wrote and they shouldn't have, or do I let them slide? And one day he was sitting with this out-of-order report, and he remembers glancing over at his manager. And his manager had an out-of-order report in front of him. It was just that um, this guy dealt with – 10,000 pound kind of uh, uh, over overdrafts and his manager dealt with 10 or 100,000 um, uh, pound kind of overdrafts. Mm -hmm. So there was an extra zero on his manager's out of order report, in other words. And then he said he happened to spot the divisional director in a glass office in the corner. And he said, yep, you guessed it. He had one more zero on the same out of order list. And he said, it was just, it was like one of those moments, like the end of the Sixth Sense movie where it's just like boom, boom, boom in your brain. He saw his whole future laid out in front of him right. and he just utterly despaired. But that despair became a prod to do something. Mm. And that's what you see so often with these moments is they, they hit you like a lightning bolt, but they also deliver the energy of a lightning bolt. So within a week, this guy has, had applied for a new job in sales and marketing and he stayed in the... Uh, career for more than 20 years now. It started with one moment where he saw laid in front of him a career followed with additional zeros. Yeah. Uh, you guys describe a story in the book, we'll leave it to the book, about uh, the guy that travels around and helps people uh, stop defecating in public too for the for the public health reasons that are associated with that. But it's pretty amazing how he goes about and, and works with those people in that uh, thing. It was also just helpful for me to hear why we shouldn't defecate in public. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little appreciated lesson, isn't it? And if you ever see, if you ever want to see the word "shit" appear about 170 times in four pages of a business book, this is your opportunity. Uh, let, let's keep going here. What role does being recognized play in these remarkable moments? Why is that important to be to feel recognized? Recognition is, is such a funny thing. It's it, it's sort of this, this universal currency. Um, uh, let me take you one step back. When, when my brother and I started interviewing about defining moments in people's careers, we would just ask them, hey, what are your best moments from the last year or two? And we kept finding these, these answers that really surprised us. They often sounded um, mundane. Um, one person was saying, well, what I remember is my boss cited me because I had spent some time cleaning and reorganizing all the bikes in the inventory. And at first, my, my brother and I were kind of scratching our heads and saying, that's the defining moment of your career from the past couple of years? 
And then as we thought more about it, we realized, hey, uh, idiots, of course this is a defining moment because this is this is capturing so many of the elements we talked about. It's a, it's a moment of connection between two people. It's a moment of insight when you discover something about what you did that worked well. It's a moment of pride because someone else is praising you for it, right? This is, this is uh, a moment that's made out of the materials of defining moments. And what's so puzzling about recognition is it's hugely important for the people who receive it. I mean, as you can tell mm-hmm. from that quote, it's like someone's getting a moment of praise and they're remembering it two years later as one of the best times in their career. Uh, but it also feels great to be the person recognizing someone else. I mean, that boss probably, you know, felt good for the rest of the day because he'd taken time to to single someone out. And yet the reality is there's this recognition gap at work. There, there's this great study that shows if you ask managers, hey, do you frequently recognize your employees for the work they've done? 80% of them will say, yeah, I do, for sure. And then if you ask their employees, um, does your manager frequently recognize you for the work you've done? Only 20% of the employees say yes. Hmm. So 80% versus 20%, that's the gap we're facing. And so in the book, we talk about a lot of different strategies for, for trying to fill that gap and recognizing um, the, the, probably there is no easier way to add more defining moments to the lives of your employees or your colleagues than simply um, multiply the number of times when they are thanked and recognized and noticed. And you're saying, but you also say in the book that employee of the month doesn't cut it. That's not, that's not the way that we go about recognizing people and appreciating them. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's funny. I I think people in, in HR in particular, I think this is, this comes from a good instinct that they think, my goodness, yes, we do need to increase the amount of recognition. And so they're like, what's the program that we could add that would deliver it? And so that's where I think the instinct for something like the employee of the month comes from is this desire to create something formal um, to realize this goal. But of course, we all know, I mean, surely we've all worked in a place that had an employee of the month award, and it's such a sham. Everybody immediately catches on. It's like if, uh, if it was really run fairly, it would be the same employee that won it every single month, like for, for the rest of time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like uh, Steve or Jenny would like have their photo on the wall 12 times in a row. Steve, man, that guy, he's just, yeah. He's just got it going yeah. on. He yeah. can't be toppled from his perch. Can't mess with Steve. And so, you know, the managers start playing games and you start looking for these kind of random excuses to give it to people. And then inevitably there's like one person left that's never won. And so you're like, well, <laughs> they didn't miss work as often this month. So here you go. You're the employee of the month. <laughs> uh, and, it, and it just breeds cynicism. You know, it becomes totally pointless as, as a means of recognition. And so the point we're making is very simple, that great recognition is, is personal. It's not programmatic. Uh, great recognition is nothing more than one human being taking a moment to recognize something else someone else has done. And it's, it's that simple. Mm-hmm. I see what you did there. I, see, I, saw, I, I saw you make an effort here. I saw that thing that you did. Just that little bit is, is so much, that, making that distinction is like, wow, they really did see me. They do pay attention to me. I, what I'm doing does matter. We get so much information from that little bit of recognition that, that comes in. Yeah, in fact, what, what you just said is kind of the conclusion of a, of a famous paper on recognition. And it says, the most effective recognition makes the employee feel noticed. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the managers are saying, I saw what you did and I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's hard to deny it when it's just like, oh, you say that to everybody or everybody gets that. It's like when you make it specific, it's, it's, a, it's a lot harder to, to push away. It's like, wow, that, that's, that's about me. That's exactly what I did. And I did make an effort there. That does matter. 
Um, let's talk about courage. How does courage come into play here when we're, when we're talking about these meaningful moments? I'm already getting that we're stretching. We're breaking the script that we're facing the truth in a lot of ways. So what's the place that courage has here? Courage is, is basically a way to create more moments of pride for ourselves. So, so part of pride is like, you know, I climbed the mountain I wanted to climb. Uh, that's, that's pride. Uh, I got a certificate because I accomplished such and such. That's pride. But when people look back on their moments of pride in life, often they're thinking of times when, when they just stood up for something that was important. And, and we can't always control those times. Like none of us know when is the next time we're going to be able to practice courage. Uh, who knows? It, 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 it may be tomorrow, maybe a year from now, but the point we're making in the book is that we can, we can be ready for those moments when they arise by practicing courage. So I, I want to tell you, is it okay if I talk about the tarantula experiment? Sure. Yeah. I love this. This is so, so crazy. So first of all, that, that anyone got funding to do this study. So they, um, <laughs> They, some researchers did a study on people with uh, arachnophobia, fear of spiders. And so they, uh, they recruited a set of people. And at the beginning of the study, they brought them in a room with a tarantula, you know, in a, in a tank, a terrarium. And they said to the participants, come as close as you feel comfortable to this tarantula. And so the average participant stopped 10 feet away. They could not get any closer to this terrarium than 10 feet away. Hmm. And then over the course of the experiment, they basically asked them to take 14 graduated steps. This is part of something that's called exposure therapy. And so step one, for instance, was can you stand five feet from the terrarium? And so people had to kind of buck up and decide, can I do this? And so they would move forward. I'll just kind of fast forward through some of these steps. Step three was can you place the palm of your hand against the closed container near the tarantula? So now, you know, they're starting to sweat a little bit and get anxious. Step seven, so halfway along uh, the routine, uh, they gave them a paintbrush and they said, uh, use this paintbrush to, to stick your hand inside the, uh, the uh, terrarium and kind of move the tarantula, just nudge him one direction or the other. And then by the end, Step 14 was to allow the tarantula to walk on the participant's uncovered hand. Mm. So even people who aren't arachnophobes would probably not be that psyched to allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what happens at the end of the study? Well, all of them, all of the participants got to step 14. And it happened in a matter of about two hours. Wow. Just astonishing. Right. And so what does this mean? It's an illustration of of something that we talk about as, you know, graduated practice. So uh, if you have a fear of spiders and you need to to buck yourself up, the best way to handle that is to work in these increments, you know, get a little closer to the terrarium, take this paintbrush, move the spider. And I think the analogy to other situations in life, we talk about um, some famous protests during the civil rights movement where the protesters had practiced what they were going to do. Like at um, the famous uh, lunch counter sit-ins in Nashville, uh, they had actually had these protesters uh, uh, in advance on mocked up counter stools where some of, um, some of the organizers' cronies who were white would come in and basically mess with these black protesters. They would, they would shove them, they would 
um, you know, mess with their hair. They would curse at them. They would call them names. Um, they even would ash their cigarettes in their hair. I mean, it was brutal stuff. Mm. But the guy who organized these practice sessions, a guy named James Lawson, he said, look, we need to know what we're facing. We need to, we need to practice this. We need to know how we're going to react so that we, when we get in the moment, it won't all be a surprise. We'll have discipline. We'll have rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And so that's the message of the book is that even though we can't always control when we're going to be called upon to act in a courageous way, we can be ready with advanced practice. I just keep getting, we got to, if we want to create these special moments in our lives, the def, these defining moments, we got to get out of our comfort zone. We got to get into the places where we're going to be stretched. We got to face the truth of, of what's really going on in our lives and our thinking and, and what's happening around us. And uh, we got to practice uh, getting into the places where we really take a stand and, and do the things that scare us. And then obviously there's connecting. There's this big, big piece of connection with the people that we love and we care about. Um, Dan Heath, check out The Power of Moments, Why Certain Experiences Have Extraordinary Impact. You can learn more by visiting heathbrothers.com. Dan, thanks so much again. Trip, thank you. It's been a pleasure. If these interviews are helping you, then please visit The New Man on iTunes and leave us a positive review so others can discover the show more easily. Thanks for listening.